It is day number three of the NBA preview show on Locked on NBA. Today we go back to the Western Conference. We'll start with the New Orleans Pelicans and the Oklahoma City Thunder. Hit the Phoenix Suns, the Utah Jazz, the Sacramento Kings, and the Portland Trailblazers. Remember, day one was Dallas, Denver, Lakers, Rockets, Clippers, and Grizzlies. And day two was Hawks, Celtics, Nets, Hornets, Bulls, and Heat. Hope you've already heard those. The numbers are through the roof, so thanks so much for tuning in. One note, programming-wise, you'll hear a mention of the Spurs. We're waiting to do that and redo it after the DeJounte Murray injury, so that will be on Friday. It is day three of the Locked On NBA season preview from the experts of the Locked On Podcast Network. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another Locked On NBA season preview. Western Conference stop number two, as I mentioned, the Spurs, the Pelicans, the Thunder, the Suns, the Kings, and the Trailblazers. Here's how the show breaks down. We get the local expert, the host of the Locked On Podcast, to give you the breakdown. Then I give you points gained. My... Astute 13-year-old daughter listening to the show said, Dad, you didn't explain points gained very well. You're right. Points gained is a proprietary stat only to the Locked On Podcast Network. The basic concept of it is if a player is given, let's just say, 10 scoring opportunities in a night, there's an average rate that the league averages. What does a player do above or below that average rate? And that's how we determine points gained. So, for example, the best in the NBA, Steph Curry. In the scoring opportunities that Steph Curry gets on a given night in the NBA, if the same, if an average player got those 19.5 scoring opportunities, Steph Curry scores 4.7 points more. Kevin Durant is number two, 3.5 points more than anyone else. Clay Thompson is at 1.4 points more than the average player with his 17 scoring opportunities a night. And just to stay with the Warriors, Patrick McCaw, who's holding out for more money with his scoring opportunities, is minus .7 points compared to an average player. We take that, and that's how we project someone's offense. Last year, we had great success with that. We got seven of the top eight Western Conference teams offensively. The only one we didn't get was Kawhi Leonard and the San Antonio Spurs, because largely Kawhi didn't play. So that's what points gained is. We'll take a look at that. But let's get this started. We'll kick it off with our New Orleans Pelicans breakdown and Jake Madison. Hey everyone, Jake Madison, host of the Locked On Pelicans podcast, here to give you a quick season preview of what to expect from this Pelicans team. There are a number of big storylines for this Pelicans team as we head into training camp, with the overarching priority being that this team is looking to improve on the success they had last season, which ended with Anthony Davis being an MVP finalist, a Defensive Player of the Year finalist, and a sweep and an absolute dismantling over the Portland Trailblazers in the first round. To do so, they need to integrate some new faces. Gone are DeMarcus Cousins and Rajon Rondo, and in are Julius Randle and Alfred Payton. There's no doubt the Pels roster on opening night is more talented than at the end of last season, but that is largely due to the fact that DeMarcus Cousins would not have been ready to play. On paper, both of the new faces fit well. The Pels led the league in pace last year with an incredibly up-tempo, transition-oriented style of offense. 
Randall can run as well as any other big in the league. Alfred Payton actually gets to the rim as much as any guard not named Russell Westbrook. Combine that with Anthony Davis out to prove that he's the best player in the league, Drew Holiday taking his game to another level, and this Pelicans team is in line to replicate last season's success in the playoffs with hopes of it going even further. And certainly this team needs to do so. Anthony Davis did sign with Clutch Sports over the summer, fueling speculation about his future, but he stated that he wants to win first and foremost more than anything else, and the Pelicans are also in line to offer him the Supermax, making him the highest-paid player in the league. If this team makes the playoffs and advances again, those rumors should die down. But if they don't, expect those to kind of carry on throughout the season with lots of trade machine speculation about where Anthony Davis could end up. If the Pelicans want their best case scenario to play out, it's going to center around one word, pace. Alvin Gentry says he wants his team to run and play at a higher level than their league leading number from last year. So far in the preseason, that's happened with the Pels just running circles around opponents and playing with a blistering fast pace. They are blowing away last year's number so far. And this team feels that that is absolutely a sustainable way to play. We already know what Anthony Davis and Drew Holiday are going to bring to this team. And if Julius Randle gels in the front court in various lineups and combinations featuring Anthony Davis and or Nikola Mirotic and Alfred Payton improves in the backcourt defensively alongside Holiday, this team should be in the playoffs and depending on seeding and matchup, primed to get out of the first round again. The worst case scenario for the Pelicans is, well, that all doesn't happen. You know, the Pelicans played very fast after the DeMarcus Cousins injury, but it was for only 26 games or so. Playing at the level and the speed and the pace that they're looking to play at over 82 games is a little bit untested, and potentially this team's identity that they've kind of built around all offseason could fall apart over the course of 82 games. The three-point shooting is also a little bit suspect for this New Orleans team, and if they can't properly spend the court for Anthony Davis or Julius Randle, it's going to make both of their lives much more difficult, especially when it comes to scoring offensively and double teams that they'll be facing. And now all of a sudden, in a very stacked Western Conference, this team could be struggling to get some wins. And if that happens, we really do hit the worst case scenario here. And that's that the rumors around Anthony Davis will start to get very loud. And at that point, then you really do have to wonder if he sees his future in New Orleans. So yeah, the worst case for this Pelicans team is not simply having a down year and a shot at a lottery pick. It's got the future of the franchise kind of based around it. The player for the Pelicans that's most likely to be thought of as differently at the end of the season absolutely has to be Julius Randle, their newest signing, a guy who's kind of left out in the big money of free agency, instead signing a two-year deal with the New Orleans Pelicans for their mid-level exception. Keep in mind, the second year, of course, is a player option. But he's in line for a breakout season, I truly believe that. This is a guy who's a strong defensive rebounder, who's got such good handles and athleticism that he can grab the ball and just take it from end to end and score in transition. And as we've said on this preview so far, the Pelicans want to play with pace and he fits right in. He's a bull down low when they do need to play in the half court. And when he wants to score against the on the basket, it's really tough for opponents to really slow him down, particularly if he gets a step or two of full steam ahead, he's going to score. 
More than that, however, I think what's jumped out through training camp practices and the limited action we've seen him in in preseason is the playmaking ability that he possesses. The Pelicans have run him as a point forward, initiating the offense through him, using Anthony Davis off ball and letting his court gravity open things up for the rest of this team. Julius Randle, again, with his good handles, can create the offense that way. Four or five pick and rolls between him and Anthony Davis or dribble handoffs between him and Anthony Davis are going to be incredibly tough to defend and Randall has already shown a knack for picking out cutters on their way to the rim or getting the ball to the corner for an open three-point shooter. This is a guy who's really trying to position himself for a big payday at the end of this season and a breakout year with this Pelicans team that should have some playoff success is certainly going to get him there. The player whose career trajectory is most likely to be impacted this season is Anthony Davis. As I just said, you know, if this team is losing he might start to view his career trajectory in another in another city with another team. But if this team does win, and winning is the most important thing to him, he said that on a number of occasions, and this is a player who's hyper-aware of his legacy and wants to go down as one of the best players of all time. And to do that, you need to win. You need to win consistently, and you need to get into the playoffs and go on deep runs there. And if the Pelicans can give him another season of that, with the Supermax deal on the horizon for him, tying him to New Orleans, for at least three more seasons, we might see really his future be here in New Orleans. In terms of rookies who might have an impact on this team, this team has high hopes for last year's second round pick, Frank Jackson, who missed all of last year with a foot injury. He's been working out with all of the Holiday brothers this offseason. Alvin Gentry said he's going to have a role with this team, maybe in 10 minutes or so a game. Kind of as a combo guard, he works well off the ball, pairing him alongside Drew Holiday, Alfred Payton, Ian Clark, and some of these other guys who can do the playmaking for him, letting him just be a shooter and other roles I think are really going to fit. So look for him to contribute to the Pelicans in some capacity this season. So my best guess for how this season ends for New Orleans, you can probably tell I'm a little bit optimistic on this. I have high hopes for Julius Randle. I think Alfred Payton's just going to give them exactly what they need. Maybe nothing more than that, but that's okay. You've got Anthony Davis, who's out to prove that he's the best player in the league. Not just one of, but the best alongside an ever-improving Drew Holiday. I think they replicate their playoff success from last year. I think they get to maybe being close to that 4-5 or five seed if all things break their way and get out of the first round again and hopefully quiet some of the rumors that Anthony Davis wants to leave New Orleans. So that's the Pelican season preview for you all. Again, I'm Jake Madison. You can follow me on Twitter at Nola Jake, and I'm the host of the Locked On Pelicans podcast. And don't forget, subscribe to Locked On NBA because partially I host every Wednesday alongside John Krause of Locked On Celtics, and we have a lot of fun on there. Make sure you guys know what's going on around the association as the season goes on. Well, here is the surprise team of points gained. Points gained loves the New Orleans Pelicans. Points gained projects the New Orleans Pelicans to have the second best offense in the Western Conference ahead of the Houston Rockets, nowhere near the Golden State Warriors, who are just worlds ahead of the rest of everybody. Then if you go take that they project to be an average defensive team, the New Orleans Pelicans project to be the fourth best team in the Western Conference with home court in the first round. How is this possible? Let me break down, as we talked about, an explanation of points gained. First off, Anthony Davis is brilliant. But the next thing is, other than Solomon Hill, who was a huge negative last year, 
with an effective field goal percentage of 33% and will likely be better this year. They really have almost no negative players, and they added Julius Randle, who's a plus 1.3. Drew Holiday's positive. Chick Diallo's positive. Nikolai Miritich is a good plus 0.6. Etwan Moore is 0.8 points better than the average player, which is a lot in his 11 scoring opportunities. Darius Miller is 0.8 points better in just his six scoring opportunities, shooting 40% from three. Ian Clark's a little below average. Alfred Payton is a minus 0.4, but so is Rajon Rondo. The Pelicans peak out on this as the number two offensive team in all of the Western Conference. They are the number three offensive team only behind Toronto and Golden State in the whole NBA on our points gained metric. This will be a real test to points gained if Anthony Davis stays healthy because they have the Pelicans as a home court team in the first round of the playoffs. Let's find out what Josh Lloyd thinks from a fantasy perspective. The New Orleans Pelicans, home to the number one fantasy player, Anthony Davis, was the number one player last season. There are some people who still do get worried about his injuries, but he's played 75 games in each of the last two seasons. I'd be happy to take him at number one. Drew Holiday was a top 20 guy last season as well. It was heavily reliant on elite efficiency, 50% field goals, and if that drops off, then maybe he does fall back into being a guy in the top 25, maybe even the top 30 type of range, rather than top 20. He's being drafted just in the early 20s. I think that's fine, but there is an element of risk there. While Nikola Mirotic and Julius Randle should be eating up all of the rest of the front court minutes that Davis doesn't play. Both of those guys have top 60 upside for this season. I'd have Mirotic marginally ahead of Randle because of his ability to contribute in more categories than what Julius does. But I think we're going to see Randle's assist numbers rise this season as opposed to what it was in LA last year. And a full season of Miritich and his ability to contribute in threes and points in rebounds and steals and blocks is an underrated aspect of what he does. I also think that Alfred Payton is a breakout or bounce back type of a guy. And slotting in as the starting point guard, maybe we're going to see more of Orlando Payton rather than Phoenix Payton, which was horrendous. So I think he is worthy of a late pick, especially considering assists are so, so hard to find at the end of a draft. And each one more was solid last season. I think there's a risk that he loses a lot of his value. A healthy Solomon Hill could take some of that playing time away from each one more for this coming season. All right, our Pelicans love is in the books. It's on the record. What about Oklahoma City? They lost in the first round of the playoffs last year to the Utah Jazz. Are they a better team without Carmelo Anthony? Paul George signs long-term. Everyone's happy. Eric G. does Locked On Sooners about Oklahoma, and he also does Locked On Thunder for us. He does two podcasts. Incredible. Here's his Thunder update. I'm Eric G., the host of the Locked on Thunder podcast, and over the next six or seven minutes, I'm going to give you a preview of the Oklahoma City Thunder season, and I'd like to do it with the assistance of Rush, so if somebody could go grab a copy of La Villa Strangato and put it underneath this, it would make it a lot more entertaining and provide some very dramatic effect. Plus, I don't like depriving people of Rush. They're Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. Russell Westbrook's going to be a Hall of Famer, so is Paul George, so it all kind of goes hand in hand. But maybe you're not a Rush fan, so maybe you're not going to miss it. Maybe you just want me to talk basketball. So that's exactly what I'm going to do. And I'm going to answer every question that David Locke has sent me in this email for all the big stories that you want to know about coming into this season with the Oklahoma City Thunder. So what are the two or three biggest storylines 
going into training camp? Well, unfortunately for the Thunder, it's injuries. And yesterday, Oklahoma City got some very bad news as Andre Robertson, on his road to recovery, suffered a major setback. Now, I call it a major setback because when Andre Robertson left last year, the Thunder's defense just went to absolute hell until Corey Brewer came in and was able to replace him. So what happens with Andre Robertson? He tears the patella tendon in his left knee, has surgery on it. The suture to use to close it up was starting to feel some irritation, so there was some uh, procedure to get that taken care of, and now Andre Robertson will be reevaluated in two months' time. So the earliest you would see him on the court is December, but as the Thunder are always quick to point out in these situations, just because somebody's being reevaluated doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be healthy enough to play. It just means that they're going to get looked at. Kevin Durant suffered major setbacks when he was overcoming the Jones fracture. Russell Westbrook suffered setbacks during one of his knee injuries. And that's just kind of the, the sort of the overall theme with Oklahoma City Thunder injuries. And it's something that we've gotten used to here in OKC. So Andre Robertson, major issue. What did the Thunder do with him? My opinion, go out, re-sign Corey Brewer, start him at two guard. He's very comfortable with the team. You've got an open roster spot and you're put in a position, uh, situation now or a position where you've got to get that taken care of. You could also start Terrence Ferguson, but I would be much more comfortable with him coming off the bench or go ahead and start Dennis Schroeder. The other big storyline, Russell Westbrook overcoming orthroscopic knee surgery, a procedure used to clean up a knee. Um, this is Russell Westbrook's fourth knee surgery that he's had to deal with throughout his career. Russell Westbrook didn't go through training camp, so that's a major issue. And now it'll be a little awkward when he comes back. The good news for Russell Westbrook is, is that he spent all summer trying to build cohesiveness with his teammates working out in Los Angeles, so maybe that awkwardness isn't such a big deal. All right, let's move on to question number two. What needs to happen for the best-case scenario? Guys just need to accept their roles. If Dennis Schroeder's coming off the bench, he needs to accept that. If Raymond Felton's minutes are cut, they need to accept it. We know what Paul George and Russell Westbrook are going to do, and as long as there's nobody that feels like they're getting rooked the way Carmelo Anthony did or didn't like their role, the Thunder should be okay. They look like a very cohesive unit in their first couple of games, and Dennis Schroeder's looking like he's been playing with this team for a long time. Uh, what would lead to the worst-case scenario? Just discontentment, guys not fitting in, and for some reason, when they do get back on the court, nobody seems to really know what their role is, but I don't see that being a major problem. So any, it's all about harmony for Oklahoma City. Also, if this bench cannot produce the way that they... Uh, the way that they have in years past, and if the the bench it has the lack of production that it did last year with inconsistencies, then the Thunder are going to be in trouble. But I don't see that happening this year because the bench is already, even just a week into training camp, looking like a much better unit than what it did in the previous season. Uh, whose career trajectory is most impacted by this season, either good or bad? Um, I'm going to say that it's Dennis Schroeder. If Dennis Schroeder comes in, can be a bench player, and can prove through being a bench player or being on the court with Russell Westbrook that he's the versatile type guy, you can see somebody make a play for Dennis Schroeder either at midseason or when his contract is up, he could get the opportunity to go run um, to, to go run a team himself. So which player is going to be thought of most differently this season? 
That's the number four. I'm going to say it's Steven Adams. A lot of people like Steven Adams right now, but there is a really good chemistry developing between him and Schroeder in the pick and roll. He's getting better at rebounds. He's becoming more of a beast. Plus, he's just got this cartoon characterness about him. He's even got his own comic book. He's written a biography. He's sort of the NBA's most interesting man right now. This is the year of Steven Adams and him becoming a superstar in the NBA, a la a guy like Blake Griffin doing a lot of commercials, etc., and you start to see jersey sales go up. Rookies who will have an impact on this year, well, it's going to be Hamadou Diallo. He's already looking good. Playing with the Oklahoma City Thunder, saw him in the blue and white scrimmage the other day, and he fits right in with the veterans. Very athletic guy out of Kentucky. Thunder got a steal with him in the second round, but he is going to have the most impact. Other than that, it's a pretty veteran-laden team, even though it did get younger in the offseason. Best guess on how this season ends? Look, I like this team, even with the Andre Robertson setback. You've added a guy like Dennis Schroeder, who you could start at the two. If you go out and get Corey Brewer, he can start at the two. And yes, not having Andre Robertson will hurt, but there's just too much talent between Westbrook, George, Schroeder, putting Patrick Patterson back in the starting lineup or in the starting lineup now as, as he has gotten a, a lot healthier. And more importantly, he's lost some weight. Best guess scenario is that this season ends with the Oklahoma City Thunder finishing third in the Western Conference. Plus, with the addition of LeBron James at the Los Angeles Lakers, the Thunder somehow are flying under the radar, and I love it because they will be able to sneak up on the national media. Not on anyone in the NBA, but they'll be able to sneak up on people in the national media. So best case, best guess, Thunder finished third at worst fourth this year and have a really good opportunity to end up in the Western Conference Finals. That's your Oklahoma City Thunder preview. For more, just go to LockedOnThunder.com and check out all our podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, I'm Eric G for Locked On Thunder. May I give a different perspective? Andre Robertson is out until December when he's reevaluated. He is the vital cog to the entire defense of the Thunder, at least according to the numbers. An 11-point difference between their defense on floor and off floor. Russell Westbrook has yet to practice as of October 10th, coming off his knee injury and has yet to play his third knee surgery. Okay, now there's a really good chance that Russell Westbrook is fine and plays on opening night. There's some good possibility that that's that seems to be likely but if there's a chance that Russell's not quite right and that they're without Andre Robertson for an extended period of time I don't know the West is really really good Dennis Schroeder has been terribly inefficient in Atlanta claims it's because he was disengaged because of the losing we'll see but here's what points gained has to say about the Thunder from a just numerical standpoint. They come out ranked as the 12th offensive team in the Western Conference. The only teams that come out with a worse offensive ranking are the Memphis Grizzlies, the Phoenix Suns, and the Sacramento Kings. We project them to be the second best defensive team because we projected Andre Robertson to be healthy and then had the Thunder finishing sixth in the Western Conference. How fragile is it? Very. If they were to slip, if, they're off, if our offensive projection, projection excuse me, is right, 
And the Thunder finish 20th overall in the league offensively, which is where we project them with the inefficiency of Dennis Schroeder. Russell had a bad year last year. He'll probably get better. But looking at them, if they were to slide to 8th, ninth, or 10th defensively, and our offensive projections on points gained are correct, the Thunder don't make the playoffs. If they slide to 10th defensively, hold to 20th offensively, they don't make the playoffs. Now, we may be wrong on this projection of them 20th offensively, but they do not have particularly efficient players surrounding Paul George on that team. Time will tell, but I do not guarantee that the Thunder are a top four team the way Eric G does through our numbers and because they have been struck by injuries first amongst the group. Here's what Josh Lloyd says about the Thunder fantasy-wise. The Oklahoma City Thunder without Carmelo Anthony, that's just going to mean more usage goes to Russell Westbrook and Paul George for this upcoming season. Now, Westbrook's knee injury is a little bit of a concern. I think he may miss some time at the beginning of the season, but I'm more concerned about a recurrence or him rushing back too early. Uh, That happened a few years ago when he had a similar knee surgery, came back and then was out for a month across the December-January period. I think he's still strong in the first round, but it's back end of the first round for Westbrook. I really like Paul George at the end of the first and the start of the second round. He was fine last season and looks to actually boost his numbers this year. And he's weirdly, his shooting for two-point range was terrible last year. If that bumps back up, he could actually challenge to be a top 10 guy this season. Steven Adams, I worry a little bit with Adams. I think he's getting a little bit overdrafted. Number 72 on Yahoo at the moment. My main worry is that his efficiency was so high last season from the field. If that drops off a bit, plus the the fact that I do think his usage will increase, which means more free throw attempts and how bad his free throws are, that becomes a significant negative. And you really have to be classing him in the Dwight Howard, DeAndre Jordan category for fantasy in that you're only really drafting him if you're willing to punt that free throw percentage category. I like Dennis Schroeder as a last pick, only because at the start of the season there's going to be no Westbrook and no Andre Robertson, so he should be able to put up top 100 numbers until at least um, both of those guys come back. And I think he'll play alongside Westbrook when he is back. But getting Schroeder early and then dropping him once those guys are back at full health and Schroeder moves back into a 20-odd minute per game role instead of 30 minutes is probably the way to go. The power forward spot up for grabs, Jeremy Grant and Patrick Patterson. I don't really like either of them as high upside plays. I'd prefer Grant over Patterson if I'm taking a fly with a last pick. But I don't think that the upside is, is big enough to be really prioritizing either of those two players heading into this season. Thank you, Josh. Josh's show, Locked on Fantasy Basketball, one of the top 50 shows on the iTunes rankings yesterday. Huge, awesome fantasy show, the best fantasy basketball show you can get. Make sure you follow it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or tell your smart speaker to play Locked on Fantasy Basketball. This show is brought to you by Vivid Seats. Vivid Seats is an online event ticket marketplace dedicated to providing you the opportunity to get to live entertainment have experiences of a lifetime. You can watch your favorite teams, your favorite artists in person at sports, concerts, theaters, and more. And with the code locked on, you receive $20 off orders of $200 or more. If you're a first time Vivid Seat customer, use the promo code locked on and get $20 off orders of $200 or more. Go to the App Store, go to Google Play, download the Vivid Seats app, enter the promo code locked on to receive $20 off. Orders of $200 or more as a new customer. All Vivid Seats 
orders are backed by a 100% guarantee. The Phoenix Suns have a new head coach. His name's Igor Kokoshkov, the first European-born head coach in the NBA. They've got a number one pick. They blew out the Warriors in a preseason game. There's a level of excitement. Let's check in with our guys from Locked on Suns. Hello, everyone. My name is Evan Sattery, and, and as always, my co-host is Brendan Clean. We run Locked on Suns, part of Locked on Podcast, and we're here for the Phoenix Suns team preview for the team preview shows. And before we even go to some of these questions, Brendan, we're recording this on the day that general manager Ryan McDonough was really out of left field fire nine days before the regular season began for the Phoenix Suns. So some of these questions in front of us that we have to answer today are going to be really up in the air until anything happens here because – I was stunned when this happened. So I guess before we even go into these questions, what do you think about what happened today? Because from my point of view, I feel like it's with James Jones coming in there. It seems like his, he has a really strong voice already. I really think that Ryan McDonough was going to be let go eventually. And James Jones was Sarver's, Robert Sarver's right hand man. He was the guy he picked to be the vice president of basketball operations. So maybe it's a year early for James Jones, but it seems like that was the direction they were seemingly going in last year, even though they extended Ryan McDonough. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. And I don't, you know, necessarily even have much opposition to that. I, I don't necessarily know if James Jones is qualified, but we've seen guys like him succeed in executive roles before. So, and I've really liked everything I've heard from him and everything that he seems to be doing, uh, in the organization kind of day to day, really monitoring and creating a foundation day-to-day within the the locker room and the franchise and just building good habits. That's really been what he's about, and I I think he's done a good job. So I don't really have any qualms about that. The majority of where I come down with frustration about it is just I don't even know if it's the optics. Like, I don't really care about that anymore. Um, I get decisions have to happen. This this franchise is going to take years to get away from bad optics, but it's just why deliberate the way that that Sarver deliberated. I guess we can go into our next point here and it's really bouncing off the McDonough firing. And it's about him hiring Eric Koshkov and extending Devin Booker to his five year, $158 million max extension, which I think outside of what happened today are the two biggest things that happened for the sun this summer outside of drafting Deandre. And we'll get to in a moment, but what do you think just about Eric Koshkov, what we've seen so far initial impressions and also what do you think Devin Booker is going to look like in this offense? Because I have high expectations for Devin Booker in this offense. I think he's going to be an all-star this year with his offense production. But how do you see it's going to go for him under Igor's tutelage? Because I think this is the type of offense, and David Locke is very familiar with Igor in Utah, very emotion-heavy, and it's going to get Booker a lot of open looks he hasn't really seen before. Yeah, I think the everything I've seen from Igor Koshkov since – they hired him from summer league to talking to him uh, here and there throughout the summer and into training camp. And now in the preseason is all, I would even say better than I was imagining. Um, I know that it hasn't always looked pretty. The Suns lost two of their first three preseason games and they um, barely beat the New Zealand breakers. I, I guess they lost two of their first four. They won. They won as we're recording this tonight against the Warriors as well. But um, even when they haven't put up points or dominated the scoreboard, they've looked really good. It looks like once Devin Booker's back in there, uh, it's going to be back to normal, and that's really exciting. And I think the Booker thing is just kind of a no-brainer. I know that it, maybe he's not going to earn that salary in year one in 2019-20, but you have a player with that much talent 
in the midst of a rebuild, you kind of have to pay him whatever he uh, needs to stay. And that was the price tag. What's your thoughts on DeAndre Ayton so far? I mean, he just had another good game in preseason. He's averaging 20 and a half points, 11 and a half rebounds, two and a half blocks, one, 1. 1.8 assists, one steal on 62 and a half field goal percentage through four preseason games. So awfully impressive, even better than he was in summer league, to be honest. So after four preseason games, is, is, are your expectations any higher for DeAndre Ayton or are they kind of in the same realm that you thought they were initially? I think they're a little bit higher. I think he's picked up a lot of, um, foundational skill stuff that I wasn't expecting. He's been incredible relative to what he was at Arizona in one year as a defensive player, protecting the rim, rotating the right way, even switching on occasion. So I think his, his ceiling to me is a little bit higher than I thought. But again, you don't want to overreact to what we've seen, but just the fact that it's come so quickly and is such a drastic improvement over what, uh, he struggled with at Arizona. I think that he's definitely looked a lot better than I was thinking. I, I think, honestly, the best-case scenario for the Phoenix Suns this year, Brendan, would be the team improving by 10 wins. I think 32-50, and 50, spoiling my official prediction here, will be my what my expectations are for the Phoenix Suns this year, even without a point guard trade. But I do think this prediction is up in the air for the Suns until that trade is made. And as we've talked about a lot on Locked on Suns through, throughout the past six weeks, we're kind of wishing and hoping for a trade at this point, but Robert Sarver seemed to indicate on 98.7 FM earlier today that a trade is imminent sometime soon before the regular season opener. So best-case scenario, I think, would be getting a point guard in, in here and helping DeAndre Aiden and Devin Booker. I think Booker's going to have a really good year, uh, I think near an all-star level, probably around 27 points per game. I think DeAndre is going to be in the rookie year of the year discussions pretty easily. Yeah, I think I don't I don't really see a way to get past 35. I guess that would maybe be my absolute best-case scenario. I don't think that's very likely, though. Um, I'll take worst-case, though, just to keep it moving. And I would say, I mean, I, I don't think that the team could be quite as bad as they were last year. They were. This is a team who was 30th in the NBA in both offensive and defensive efficiency, finished with the worst record in franchise history, the first number one overall pick in franchise history. Uh, basically the worst season the Suns have ever had. I don't think it really could get that bad because I think they have too much veteran talent this year. They have DeAndre Ayton in place. Um, Devin Booker is going to continue to improve. We assume they'll have a point guard. So I don't think it'll get that bad, but I think you could see them down around 25 games again if, you know, if the offensive system proves to be too much for them to learn quickly and the defense, um, you know, they, they still have a lot of young players and it's tough to form a cohesive, solid defense with young players. So I think there's a chance the defense is just as bad as it was last year. And the offense just doesn't quite get over the hump enough to make up for it. And I think they could be right around, you know, the mid twenties and wins again. And we could be talking about the lottery again, come, you know, March and April, which I think both of us hope won't happen, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility knowing how that team is. That's quite possible, to be honest. But I, well, I guess we'll move on to your next point, and the player most likely to be thought differently at the end of the season. And for me, I would go Devin Booker. I know that might be a surprise to some people, but I really, truly believe that Booker will have a national breakout year this year. I, I'll, to add on to my stat prediction from earlier, I think 27 points, 7 assists, 5 rebounds, going to the James Harden direction under Igor Koshkov makes a ton of sense for him. I think he's going to have a lot of high usage still, even with DeAndre and the rivals. So, I know Booker nationally has had a weird argument toward him about just being a stat pattern on a bad team, but if you've watched the Suns close to the past year or two, you'll know that's completely different than the, na- the national consensus. So, All right, staying on 
players. Um, we got a guy who's kind of going to not like a make or break year, but somebody who has a lot riding on this season. And I think to me, that's Josh Jackson. I think that we could, even before the season starts, potentially see him shipped out depending on the, the size of the fish they're trying to reel in with this point guard deal. But even if that doesn't happen, uh, I think how he performs this year, how he ups his trade value and his overall value to the, to the team is going to go a long way in deciding what he ultimately becomes as a player. There's so many rookies on this team, Brendan. They drafted five of them. If you include George King, who's on a two-way contract, they traded for D'Anthony Melton. They also drafted Elliot Koba at 31, Mikhail Bridges at 10, DeAndre Aiden at 1. So if we exclude Aiden from this, just to mix it up a little bit, because I know we everyone probably agrees that both of us are going to say that Aiden's going to have an impact, which I think I, I really think he will. I think I'll have a rookie of the year type production. So outside of Aiden, of those two, three or four guys, who would you say will have the biggest impact and how much? Yeah, I think I think I'm, I'm really excited about what Anthony Melton could do. I don't know if it comes this year. There's a decent chance it won't because I think – he is so young. He didn't play his sophomore season at USC because of the FBI investigation into their program. Um, bombed away at summer league and looked really impressive. Ryan McDonough, again, before he was fired, said that part of the uh, impetus for trading for him was his performance at summer league kind of locked in that his shoot, shooting might be a reality, that improvement might be real. So I think He's somebody who I'm hoping makes a, real, a big impact because of the hole at point guard. And even even if they were to acquire a starting level guy, they're going to need depth behind him. And I think everybody's going to have an equal shot to show out in that role. I think Melton has the best chance to do so. I do agree with you on Dante and Melton, but to mix up a little bit, I'm going to go Mikhail Bridges just to see how his minutes shake out with TJ Warren. He's looking really good in preseason, by the way. Josh Jackson's struggling, but whatever happens to this trade, that's going to impact Mikhail Bridges' minutes. But they gave the 2021 unprotected Miami pick before McDonough was let go, their most valuable trade chip. So they obviously thought a lot of McKill Burgers when he was drafted, so they're expecting an instant impact from him. So I'm really intrigued to see how he produces this year and beyond with the Suns. But before we have to go today, Brendan, what's your overall thoughts and record prediction for the Suns this year? Uh, I'm going to go the same as I did before, even though we've had a trade since we last talked about it. I'm going to go 30 and 52. I think that the team is going to improve. As I said before, there's just a way higher floor with the talent that they added this summer. But again, they're young. They don't have really much in the way of star level shot creation. Uh, the defense is going to be a problem. So I think they'll get better, but I don't see them being on the rise toward a playoff spot or even towards being 500. As I mentioned earlier, 32 and 50 is my prediction. So we're right near each other there, Brendan. So not much else to say there. I appreciate you guys listening in for the Phoenix Suns preview and make sure to tune on a locked on Suns and make sure to follow our Twitter page. By the way, we always appreciate support over on Twitter at locked on PHX Suns. So thanks for listening. Exciting times and interesting times has always seemed to be the case in Phoenix. Points gained actually doesn't have a lot with these guys because of the amount of rookies and doesn't have a great analysis, does have them finishing a little lower than 32 and 50, has them uh, ahead of Sacramento, uh, but not uh, any higher than that. So maybe 32 and 50, we'll see. But uh, as the 14th ranked team in the Western Conference, what does Josh Lloyd say about fantasy in the sense? 
The Phoenix Suns are going to be led by Devin Booker. I think he's a strong second-round pick for this season. Not really worried about the hand injury. I think his playmaking ability, his assist numbers are going to shoot through the roof under Igor Kokoshkov. They don't have a real point guard on this team, and I think that he should be playing a James Harden type of role. His efficiency went up last season. He's going to score a lot. If he can get the steals up to 1 or 1.2, he's going to challenge for the top 15, top 16. Love him as a second-round pick. DeAndre Ayton, I wasn't a fan of him as a number one overall pick, but I think he's going to be the number one fantasy uh, rookie this season. High-efficiency big men who shoot high field goal percentage and high free throw percentage uh, are hard to come by. He'll block some shots. He'll get some rebounds. He's going to get the minutes. He's fine anywhere between 40 and, and 60. He's getting picked at pick 65 on Yahoo. I think in most competitive leagues, he'll be off the board before that. And I have taken him at 40 and 45 in, in a few drafts already. So I think he's fine there. Outside of those guys, I don't think there's any real locks for the top 100 on this team. Trevor Ariza is overrated as a fantasy player. And I think more of the same will be the case this year. Ryan Anderson, I don't want anything to do with him. The flyer type guys you can look at is uh, Josh Jackson or Shaq Harrison in a last pick. I think at this point, Harrison is going to be the starting point guard. He can generate steals at a high rate. He'll get some assists. He might hit some threes. I think he is fine as a last pick. Whereas Jackson, I just don't know where the minutes are going to fall for him. He's going to be behind Ariza. Will he get to 30 minutes per night? He put up okay numbers last season on horrible efficiency in the second half of the year, but that was when Warren and Booker were both out. Not only are Warren and Booker both back, but Ariza, Ryan Anderson, and DeAndre Ayton are there. So I think it's going to be a bit hard for Josh Jackson to live up to that. But as a last-round pick, take a fly. Or if you believe DeAnthony Mountain or Ali Okoba are going to be the starting point guards, grab them with your last pick. But outside of Booker and Ayton, no real surefire top 100 players on this Suns team. Our next stop is the Utah Jazz, and I do the Utah Jazz Locked on Jazz, so I will take you through the preview. The Utah Jazz are one of the few teams in the NBA to be the second round of the playoffs both of the last two years, and they decide to bring the whole team back. That storyline number one on the Jazz is, was it the right move to return the whole group? They re-signed Dante Exum, they re-signed Derek Favors, they let Jonas Jarebko go, they'll explain. Replace him with George Niang, former out of Iowa State, originally drafted by the Pacers. But storyline number one with this team is simply that they've brought the whole group back. Can they recreate the fantastic finish of a year ago? The Jazz last season were lost in Atlanta, went to 19 and 28, seemed to be out of it, won 11 straight, 21 of their last 23, or 21 of 23, and 29 of their last 35 games. In that stretch, their defensive rating was 101 or below in 25 of their last 33 games. And in 38 of Rudy Gobert's 54 games, it was 101. And that gets to the, probably the next question. Can the Jazz maintain an elite defensive rating that they close the season on? End of season numbers are often flawed, but in the last 20 games, the Jazz defensive rating was a 95.3. League average is a 107. So the best way to explain that is that the Jazz defense in the final 20 games of the year was better than the Rockets or Warriors offense was compared to league average by a considerable amount. The third storyline is Donovan Mitchell. What does year two have for this incredible phenomenon? From December one on, he averaged 22.5 points a game. He shot 45% from the field, 33% from three. As the year went on, his off-the-bounce three games slipped a little and dropped below 30%. Will he be able to stay uh, above 30%, be a good off-the-bounce three uh, player 
and will that increase his productivity? If he can increase his productivity, if Rudy Gobert's defense is still that good, if the Jazz maintain this incredible team chemistry that they had that led them to bring everyone back, you get the best-case scenario. And the best-case scenario is this team's the second-best team in the Western Conference, that they surpass the Houston Rockets, who slip a little bit, and Rockets would probably have to slip to have that happen, and that they knock on the door of the Golden State Warriors. A grand question about the Utah Jazz gets to the worst-case scenario, and that is, can Rudy Gobert defensively impact games when playing against the elite offensive teams. The fact is in the Rocket series that the Jazz held the Rockets to their defensive to their offensive average. They didn't have nearly the impact they have on everybody else, but it wasn't as though the Rockets offense until game 5 ran away from them and the Jazz were playing without Rudy Gobert in that stretch. But is the league speeding up? Will the increased three-point shooting somehow negate Rudy Gobert's impact and it, all the switching defensively and equal size players somehow make it harder for Rudy to have the defensive impact that is there. The other thing is the Jazz are not loaded offensively. The question all year last year was, is there any scoring to help Donovan Mitchell? That question still exists. The second leading scorer on the team is Gobert, then Rubio, then Ingles. The Jazz are looking to get the ball into Gobert and above the rim more, playing above the cup with Derek Favors as well and pounding that restricted area with their size. But there's still questions on whether or not this team has enough offensive firepower to move itself up into the league rankings. At the trade deadline last year, they were able to trade two players, Rodney Hood and Joe Johnson, both which had negative plus minuses on this team. Everybody else on the team has a positive plus minus, and they have been propelled since then. So that'll also be one of the kind of best case scenarios is if, in fact, those two trades really cleared the deck and helped everything else. The player most likely to be thought of differently at the end of the season, I think, is Ricky Rubio. Ricky Rubio has increased his three-point shooting in each of the last three seasons. He shot 35% from three last year. He's at 41% in the last 40 games of the year from three. And if Ricky Rubio has another solid year as a point guard, shoots well, he becomes more than just the known as the poor shooting plus-minus player, good plus-minus player that he's been known throughout his career. If he's able to do that, I think he elevates him. Now, frankly, Sports Illustrated put him in the top 50 players or 53 players in the NBA, so that respect seems to be there. But Rubio has just been known as this poor shooting creative player if he's able to have another good shooting year and really make it since midway through of his last year in Minnesota, that will be interesting. The other thing on Rubio is this is the first time since year one to year two in his career where he's playing for the same coach in back-to-back seasons. He's never done that before, and if you think back to between year one and year two, he was rehabbing an ACL. He seems to be in good rhythm with head coach Quinn Snyder, understanding exactly what they want, being given a level of freedom and confidence that he's never had before. The player whose career trajectory will be most impacted this season, either good or bad, is Don Dante Exum. Dante Exum is the former number five pick of the draft. The Jazz signed him to a three-year, $33 million deal. He'll be, in all likelihood, the first guard off the bench. He's got amazing speed. When you watch him play, it's clear why he was drafted fifth, but it's not clear still to this day if he'll become the quality player of a fifth draft. That draft wasn't great, but his three-point shooting has been suspect. He was sub-30% last year in his limited time coming off a shoulder injury. So there's really three questions for Exum. 
One, can he keep his body healthy? He's had an ACL and a shoulder separation, and he plays at a tremendous speed. Two, can he shoot well enough to be a guard or wing player in the NBA? And three, can he learn how to corral this unbelievable, amazing speed that he has as a player? If he's able to do those things, his three-year, $33 million deal from the Jazz looks like a great deal moving forward, and they take a big step forward with his career trajectory. If he doesn't, it's quite obvious. The rookie that uh, has the chance to have the most impact is really only Grayson Allen. He's the only rookie on the club. I don't suspect that Grayson will be a part of the regular rotation to start the year because of the great depth on this roster, but I do suspect by January, February, March, he works himself in. The things he does well, shooting, playmaking, feeling the game, playing with intelligence, cutting to the basket, he does fabulously. He looks much more comfortable in the open space of the NBA than he did playing with Wendell Carter and um, the other big uh, Bagley at Duke last year. Uh, He seems to be better there. He is having a little bit of a tough time on the defensive end, as all rookies do, and taking care of the basketball. Those will be the things he needs to solve. The Jazz season, if they are, in fact, elite defensively, I'm a strong believer that elite defense has the same exact impact as elite offense, and they will be one of the five best teams in the NBA, as they have been each of the last two years. If something has changed in the NBA... That will be the question defensively. My best guess is they are second or third in the Western Conference uh, because of their great defensive play. Points gained agrees with me, which isn't surprising since it's my statistic. They actually have the Jazz. Uh, with the loss of Rodney Hood and the loss of... Uh, with the loss of Rodney Hood and the loss of Joe Johnson uh, being a pretty good offensive team, actually. The only negatives on the team are Jay Crowder, uh, Ricky Rubio, and Donovan Mitchell from last year. If Donovan Mitchell projects to have a little bit of a more efficient year, second players do. The Jazz come out as the fifth best offense in the Western Conference. We project them as the number one defense, and that actually projects them as the second overall team behind the Golden State Warriors and with actually some considerable distance between them and the Houston Rockets for third. From a fantasy standpoint, let's hear what Josh Lloyd has to say. Very little has changed with the Utah Jazz from a fantasy point of view. Donovan Mitchell, everyone's surprise last season. I think he can take a step forward this year with an increase in efficiency, maybe some more assists as well. I think he's pretty strong as a second-round guy. Maybe a little bit overvalued, ranked 17th on Yahoo. I think that's a little bit too high. More in the 23 to 30 type of range for Mitchell. And Rudy Gobert, I think he's in that same sort of zone as well. Obviously, very different players, but getting uh, getting blocks can be a tough category to get. And if, if Gobert is healthy, we know he's going to provide that. Rick Rubio uh, struggled earlier last season. The second half, he was on fire, hitting 40% of his threes. He saw his usage and his assist rate go up. And while I'm not expecting him to go back to Minnesota Timberwolves days in terms of generating assists, I think Rubio in that... uh top 50 type of an area in top 55 is absolutely fine rock solid and it's going to be putting up some good numbers same with joe ingles in the 60 to 75 type of an area hits his threes at a ridiculous rate gets assists gets steals Nothing much is going to change for Ingles. Derek Favors is a very low upside late round guy and normally my late round picks I want some high upside so in a lot of cases I think he'll be undrafted Whereas Jay Crowder is an interesting player who could see uh, maybe a rise back to relevance this season. I'm still looking at him more as a deeper league sort of a player at this point. But he and Dante Exum are going to be players to watch on this team. But overall, the value is pretty uh, pretty solid on this Utah Jazz team. 
Our NBA show continues. Five days, six teams a day. All 30 teams in the books. If you didn't catch day one or day two, Dallas, Denver, Lakers, Rockets, Clippers, and Memphis, day one. Atlanta, Boston, Brooklyn, Charlotte, Chicago, and Miami, day two. Tomorrow, Eastern Conference again. Cleveland, Detroit, Indiana, New York, Orlando, and Philadelphia. We have two to go. We have the Sacramento Kings and the Portland Trailblazers. Let's start it off with Eric Garcia Gunderson and the Portland Trailblazers. Hey, Locked On NBA listeners. It's Eric Garcia Gunderson, your host of Locked On Blazers, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. And here to give you the lowdown on the Blazers heading into this upcoming season. And I think one of the biggest storylines heading into the coming season for Portland is Damian Lillard. And, you know, I know that there's been a lot of people talking about rumors and, and his unhappiness and trades. A good performance can definitely help uh, kind of maybe sway him. But uh, the, the, the real story is, you know, the clock is ticking on Damian Lillard, I think, uh, to an extent. And he, he signed a, a massive deal, and he's not up until 2020, but he... Uh, has put together some of the best seasons of his career. He just made first team all NBA for the first time last season. And he promptly saw the Blazers in the offseason with their bad cap situation go for cost effective moves by signing Seth Curry and Nick Stauskas to try and bolster the team's three point shooting. They lost one of their biggest leaders in Ed Davis. And that uh, will be a story as the season goes on as well. How do they fill the vacuum of leadership? In the Blazers' locker room, uh, early returns are that it might fall on C.J. McCollum more this season to, to, to be more of a vocal leader with Ed Davis gone. So how that develops, how Dame and C.J. lead together, uh, you know, that's going to be another really interesting story. I think, you know, that void of leadership with Ed Davis. And then I think the other one is, is can this team find a, 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 a small forward to, to pair with their group? Because... They're going to go with Evan Turner, and that experiment hasn't worked, but the Blazers have tried to go even further all in by signing more shooters that are kind of the vision is to play around Turner playmaking in the middle of the floor. So um, does a small forward emerge as the best guy? Does does Evan Turner come in and, and, and solidify himself as a real legitimate six-man-of-the-year candidate? You know, that's going to be big. And does Mo Harkless stay – you know, does he – continue the growth he showed last season. Uh, Then Pat Connaughton has been gone. The Blazers drafted Gary Trent Jr. They also have second-round pick Jake Lehman from a couple of years ago who uh, has reportedly worked his way into the rotation. But which one? can any of those guys prove that they are undoubtedly the best guy? I think that is a huge, huge story for the Blazers this season. I think what needs to happen for the best-case scenario for the Blazers, the uptick in three-point shooting, and and, and that causes a, an, a more efficient offense. You know, I think that is is the best-case scenario. All the shooters that they got, whether it's Stauskas or Curry, uh, in addition to Lillard and McCollum, and then you throw in Mo Harkless and all those guys, you know, those are all guys that... Uh, they need to to hit those threes, and Portland's banking on that. So uh, I know it, it seems pretty reductive to say the shot has to go in, but 
that is really going to be a big key for the Blazers this season because they're shifting from the identity they had last season, which was really built on offensive rebounding and second chances. And that's how they've got uh, good offensive ratings in the past with this group, but they're going in a different direction because of the way the playoff series went against New Orleans. So uh, it definitely is going to be something to watch. Can they make those threes? Did the investments that Neil Olshay make in the offseason pay off? Uh, what would lead to the worst-case scenario? Uh, those shooters being, uh, you know, th- th- not being shooters, not being able to knock down shots, not to be able to give Damian Lillard, Evan Turner, CJ McCollum, Nurkic even the space to, to, to roam free. And uh, I, I think that is a big problem. And then, uh, you know, you, you got a lot of youth on this team. And uh, I think one of the, the difficulties that they have to kind of navigate is how they – go with such a forward with such a young team. Evan Turner's 29 and he's the oldest guy in this group. So um, back to that leadership question that we talked about up top, but if something goes wrong, you know, in the chain of leadership, obviously it's been a pretty solid ship since Lillard has been here, but uh, this is a new group and, and the kind of the veteranness and the, the savvy of this group might be tested because it, it's a group that's very young and doesn't have a lot of old heads to kind of keep, uh, you know, their head straight. So uh, that's going to be really, really interesting to see. Uh, and I think the player that's going to be thought of differently at the end of the season for me is going to be Zach Collins. I think Collins, uh, because of Donovan Mitchell and how good Donovan Mitchell was, Collins kind of just became the guy to kind of pile on because he wasn't playing a lot at the beginning of the season and Portland traded up two picks to get him. So obviously a lot of people were ready and you know Portland's past with big men in that spot at that 10-11 spot with Myers Leonard hasn't been great as of late for Portland. But I do think that Collins will be thought of differently this season and I think he's going to get a chance and uh, really going to be counted on to play big minutes, defend, shoot the three, and and really be that force for the Blazers as the backup center. Uh, and I think that the player whose trajectory will be most impacted by this season, either good or bad, I think it's it's going to be Myers Leonard. I think Myers Leonard's trajectory, he's had a pretty good career so far, seven years. He's made a lot of money, but uh, I think he's going to get an opportunity this year to play, and I do think that uh, on some level – uh, he's going to get the opportunity this year to show what he can do. And um, good or bad, he's going to get a chance, I think, is what uh, you know. I'm, I can tell you, I think, this year. And he's had a, a bunch of chances. He's been in the league for seven years. But uh, I think uh, maybe this is kind of his one of his last chances to really make an impact and stick in the league, good or bad. So I think his reputation is going to kind of go one way or the other with this season. Uh, rookies who will have an impact, I think Gary Trent Jr. is the most likely rookie to get a chance to play for the Blazers. He fills a positional need. He has a pedigree, has an NBA body. That How much he plays is going to be the question, though, because Terry Stotts has not been one to play rookies unless your name is Damian Lillard. So uh, my best guess on how the season ends, I think Portland uh, beats their over-under projection. I think they're going to get about 47 wins, and I think they'll make the playoffs once again uh, in a West that it seems packed every year, and it seems like every year we're taking Portland out of the the playoff race, but I'm I'm counting on the institutional 
uh, abilities of Damian Lillard, Terry Stotts, CJ McCollum, and even Nurkic uh, to an extent, and Aminu as well. So, uh, you know, those are four guys I think you can kind of count on. And if you get any extras from Nurkic shooting that three, which he had in the preseason game, you know, that then you're talking, you know, maybe in the high, in the low 50s. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I'm pretty optimistic on this Blazers team. So, uh, listen in to Locked On Blazers, subscribe, and follow along uh, during a very, very important and pivotal season for the Blazers franchise. The other night in the Blazers preseason game, Terry Stotts did something interesting. He played C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard completely together the whole game, and they were plus 22 when on the floor against the Utah Jazz. That's worth keeping an eye on. That could be a really big shift. Points gained likes the Blazers uh, as well. The Blazers offensively come out as the ninth best team in the Western Conference, which is not great, but there's a lot of really good Western Conference teams there. They come out with the 15th best offense overall, which is right where they were last year, ninth best defense, and they come out seventh in the Western Conference playoff picture. Let's get what Josh Lloyd says about fantasy. Portland Trailblazers, a team that's, I guess, pretty unexciting from a fantasy point of view. You've got a, a lock first rounder in Damian Lillard, who I think is fine at pick 10 or 11 around that side, sort of an area. He's going to be solid with his scoring. He gets threes. The assists and steals are okay without being fantastic, and we know that there's going to be excellent free throw percentage. I think CJ McCollum's being overdrafted. Uh, pick 31 on Yahoo's way too high. He saw his efficiency regress last season. More talk of him playing off the ball, so the assist numbers will fall. Bad at steals. I think he's probably uh, a guy around pick 50 to 55, not at pick 30. I don't want anything to do with him at that area. Well, Yusuf Nurkic, a free throw percentage is a concern for Nurk. I think that uh, there is some risk with him always with injury, with bad attitude, with benchings. But around that 70 to 80 mark, he's fine. He's got the top 50 upside. But whether he can reach that still remains a big question mark. And then you've got the two forwards, Mo Harkless and Al Farouk Aminu. Harkless still dealing with the uh, knee issues from March last season. Should be a starter. Low upside, but can contribute in the defensive stats. Same as Aminu, although his field goal percentage has been absolutely horrific, especially for a power forward. They bring in Seth Curry. Maybe he's a late-round flyer if he gets some of those minutes, but I think they're going to be running more of a four-guard versus three-guard rotation than they have in the past with Wade Baldwin there, so that maybe limits what Curry can do. And the other flyer-type guy we can look at is Zach Collins. And if Nurkic does fall out of favor or struggles or gets hurt, Collins is there. Ed Davis was allowed to walk, walk so that Collins could be the backup center. I think Zach has an interesting fantasy game and would be someone to pay attention to. But the real guys we're looking at here are Lillard, McCullum, and Nurkic with Harkless and Aminu as those late-round type of players. Our final stop on the day three of our NBA previews is the Sacramento Kings. And I hate to say it. I think it might be the final stop when you look at the bottom of the Western Conference standings as well. Maybe Matt George feels differently. How's it going, NBA fans and Locked On NBA Nation? This is Matt George, the host of Locked On Kings, and I am excited. I am fired up for the start of the regular season, as are all of us here in Sacramento, in the California capital, because we are so anxious to see these boys in purple take the floor. So we can find out what the hell we have here in Sacramento. A lot of question marks around this Kings roster, this Kings franchise, the front office, coaching staff. There is a lot uh, that we can cover here in a short period of time, so I'm going to speed through as much as I can. Let's put it this way. There are two major ways to uh, support this team or cover this team or follow this team in Sacramento. There's the pessimistic view and there's the optimistic view. Now, if you've listened to my podcast before, it doesn't take you too long to figure out that I am on the optimistic side of things. I choose to do that as 
a coping mechanism more than anything else, to be honest with you, because the Kings, as we know, now have the longest playoff drought in the NBA. Thanks, Minnesota Timberwolves. Nice of you to uh, to hand that title down to us as you made the playoffs last year. Uh, even though I'm an optimist, I'm not a blind optimist. I am not, or I am a realist. I recognize and I understand that the likelihood of the Kings making the playoffs this year is very, very low. Now, it's professional sports. We've seen stranger things, but I certainly would not put my money on it. However, I do think from this year, you're going to see a Kings team that's much more established than people give them credit for. They're going to win a lot more games than people give them credit for. And going into next summer, you're going to be looking at them as a piece or two away from being an 8th, 7th, or 6th seed playoff contender in the 2019-2020 season. Let me tell you why. Three major storylines heading into this Sacramento Kings season. First one is run-and-gun transition offense. Are the Kings finally going to read the writing on the wall and emphasize Size their player strengths. They have one of the fastest point guards in the league in De'Aaron Fox. Push the tempo. They have athletic big men in Willie Cauley-Stein, Harry Giles, and Marvin Bagley. Push the tempo. They have a really good catch-and-shoot three-point shooter who can also run the floor and a very young shooting guard in Buddy Heald. Push the tempo. They have a great ta- uh, passer and someone who's also capable of running the floor in uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich. Not to mention a bench unit led by Yogi Ferrell, who's a really fast player. Push the tempo. Enough of this half-court offense, high post through Zach Randolph. It didn't work. It was bad. It was terrible. Uh, I'm looking for Coach Yeager to completely throw that out and 100% buy-in to this team running in transition. Storyline number two is De'Aaron Fox ready to take over as the leader and the star for this team. When the Kings traded DeMarcus Cousins, they traded away their star. They're in, they're on the hunt for a new star, and you need to have a star to be successful in the NBA. Fox showed flashes of that last season, especially in crunch time. Had a couple of really good clutch moments, including that tip dunk game winner in Miami. Also had a couple of clutch buckets in Sacramento to send some games to overtime. Uh, is he ready, though, to consistently be that star and be that leader on a nightly basis? Pay attention to that, because if he is, uh, then things are going to be looking good for this team going forward. Uh, and finally, storyline number three. Marvin Bagley, was he the right pick at number two? Now, I don't think we'll have a definitive answer for that question by the end of this season. However, I do believe because you are the number two pick in a very, very, very talented draft, you need to at least establish yourself as someone worthy of that selection in the opening months of the season. By the end of December, beginning of January, we should be able to look at Marvin Bagley and say, okay, you're not at that ceiling. You still obviously have stuff to work on, but I can see the talent. I can see the ability. I can see how well you fit with De'Aaron Fox and what the Kings are trying to do. I understand why they took you at number two over Luka Doncic or Jaron Jackson Jr. That's that's all I'm asking for uh, for Marvin Bagley specifically. So all eyes are going to be on Bagley relatively quickly uh, to prove that he was worthy of that uh, that number two overall pick uh, and that he is truly as dominant as he showed in his time at Duke. Best case scenario for the Sacramento Kings team is uh, pushing the tempo, establishing themselves as an offensive threat, uh, someone who can run you out of a building on any given night, who can put up 120 points on you in 48 minutes if they need to. Uh, we know defensively they're still going to have struggles. However, I would like their defense to to improve enough so that they can get out in transition. You have to get stops in order to uh, uh, push the tempo offensively and beat defenses back down the floor. Uh, so are they going to be able to do 
that? And also, are they going to be able to take care of their home floor against Eastern Conference opponents? Really, I'm expecting this to be a good year for the Kings against the East. We know LeBron James is now in L.A. He's now with the Lakers, so the Kings are going to be playing him four times this year instead of just two. We know how much better the Western Conference has gotten and continues to get. I don't expect the Kings to be high up on the list in terms of juggernauts in the uh, Western Conference. They're going to be towards the bottom of the conference. I think we can all expect that. However, that doesn't mean they have to perform bad against the Eastern Conference. They start out the season at home against the Utah Jazz and then go on an Eastern uh, Conference road trip. I would like to see them establish themselves against those Eastern Conference teams, be competitive in a nightly basis, and maybe still uh, go around 500 against the East this year. If you can do that, that is the best-case scenario for this team going forward. You're looking at wins in the 30s. Worst-case scenario, you revert back to what you did last year, a stubborn, unestablished offense, a team with no identity. You use Zach Randolph too much. You use Costa Cufos too much. You're not playing De'Aaron Fox with... uh, with Marvin Bagley, you're not pushing the tempo. If the Kings do that, it's going to be a long and painful year. And honestly, if the Kings are not a run-and-gun team this year, they're not going to win more than 15 games. A player you need to keep your eye on, Buddy Heald. I'm telling you, and I've said this a bunch of times on the Locked On Kings podcast, Buddy Heald is going to have a big year. He is going to explode. I'm talking about someone, if he was able to add his own jump shot during the summer and work on that part of his game, then we're talking about someone who's going to be in the running for most improved player of the year. Ultimately, overall, here was the optimist's view for the 2018-2019 Sacramento Kings season. The Kings are going to win just as many, if not more, games than they ever did with DeMarcus Cousins. That's at 33. If they're able to do that, that shows that Vladi Divac and the Kings are moving in the right direction. I pegged the Kings win total at 34, including going over 500 against the Eastern Conference and uh, defending the home floor. Well, uh, let's see if they can get it done. I'm excited to get this season going. Kings basketball is back here in Sacramento. We couldn't be more excited. Points gained is not excited about the Kings. Let's just leave it at that. I don't need to just break down. I will say this. Buddy Heald, great year last year. Catch and shoot game. A lot of things like that. Absolutely fantastic. The Bogdanovich knee injury, not great, but there's not a single player on their roster that is an above-average points gain player. So points gain just kills them. Let's hear what Josh Lloyd says from a fantasy standpoint. The Sacramento Kings. Who knows what's going to happen with this team? I think Darren Fox does get a big jump up in his minutes for this season, but uh, low steal numbers, lack of efficiency, low three-pointers does limit what he can do fantasy-wise, but I still love him at that ADP of 128. I think the best player on this team, or best fantasy player on this team, sorry, is going to be Bud Heald, who was uh, he was ranked uh, 90, 89th on Yahoo at the moment. He's going around that spot. I think he's got top 60 potential, assuming he plays 29 minutes instead of the 24 or 25 that Dave Yeager was uh, weirdly keeping him to last season. He doubled his steal rate last season. He's talking about increasing his assist rate. But one of the more important things is, can he get to the free throw line more? Because he shoots a good percentage. And if he can get there more often, those that value will really skyrocket with Hewitt. So I like him as a mid to late round sort of a player. Bogdan Bogdanovich, the knee injury is a bit of a worry. I would have looked at him as a late round guy, but now I'm a little bit scared off based on that injury. Still happy to take him with a last pick. And the big men, it's a mess. Willie Cauley-Stein, Marvin Bagley, Zach Randolph, Harry Giles, Scal Lebissier, Costa Kufos, Who's going to get the minutes? I think we're looking at Bagley and Cauley Stein most likely to get most of those, but I wouldn't be looking anywhere inside the top 100 for either of those players. There's too much uncertainty with how good these guys are and with what Dave Yeager is going to do. I think Bagley's not going to be a good fantasy player really at any point in his career. 
Whereas Corley Stein, we've sort of seen what he can do, and it's not fantastic. They are late-round type of a guy. Uh, with Bogdanovich out, who's going to get the, the minutes there? Is it going to be Justin Jackson? Will it be Nemanja Bielica playing at small forward? I think both of those guys have relatively limited upside as well and wouldn't be considering them elite fantasy guys. So the sleeper guy is Harry Giles, though. If they do decide to go with that uh, with that combination of Bagley and Giles in the front court more often, then he could be worth it. But I, I just it's going to be hard to get a definitive answer on this at any point this season, given the way that Jaeger has uh, run the rotations in the past. Well, that wraps day three in the books. Tomorrow we'll go back to the Eastern Conference, and then we'll hodgepodge it on Friday with the last set of teams. It's Locked On NBA, all part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Locked On Fantasy Basketball with Josh Lloyd, absolutely fabulous. Make sure you go grab it when you get a chance.